exploring our lives, um, which I think for me, the topic of generosity really um, is about a life thing, and we'll get into that a bit more. Um, ironically, I don't actually think the best place to start is ourselves, um, because if we do, I think we end up getting tangled into all sorts of knots and idea of judgment and oh, I'm so terrible at this and I'm going to strive to do this which is never that helpful um, and so what we as Lucy and I came to sort of plan this morning together um, we thought actually a much better place to start is well who who is God who is Jesus and in having a revelation of who God is that is what we believe actually changes us and it makes it much more fun and a lot less of a drag because we're being changed by uh, someone who is the most inspiring, most incredible, uh, most powerful um, being person um, in the whole of existence. Um, and I think one of the things is as well to acknowledge is we can't act in a way that doesn't meet with our revelation of God. So if we're trying to, I don't know, um, what's a good example? I should have thought of an example when I was planning this, didn't I? If, if, if we're trying to be um, really creative, but actually we think God is really boring and, and, you know, isn't creative, actually that will stifle our creativity. Um, one leads to the other. It's about what we believe about life and about God, which really has a massive impact on what we're able to do outwardly. Um, so if we have um, a revelation of God that he's a bit mean and doesn't give much, um, then, of course, we're going to be a bit mean and not give much. It just goes without saying. Um, and so I wanted to start with one of my favorite stories about Jesus. Um, and it's not just because it involves a lot of booze. And I have had to not drink anything for nine months, which has been quite difficult for me. Um, I, I, um, I have a very healthy relationship with alcohol. I would like to put that out there. Um, and I don't condone over drinking, but I do strongly recommend a little bit ever so often. I think it's really great. I've had to go without it for nine months. And maybe that's why I love this story so much right now. I don't know. Um, but I think actually the reason I love this story, and it's the story of a big party, basically, um, a wedding but it would have been, at the time, uh, one of the biggest ways that people would have partied in those days. It was a wedding in Cana. Um, it's because, to me, it reveals some in really challenging things to me about Jesus, which transform, I hope, and I hope will transform more, my outlook on life and, and how, I, how I am. It's um, in John. Um, chapter 2 verses 1 to 12 if you want to look it up and it's the story is traditionally called the wedding in Cana and it's got to the stage in the wedding where they've done all the ceremonial bits and now it's the party and I actually I know this is probably a club or a music venue but actually in those days when they had this party it would have been absolutely huge you would have had out like probably thousands of people there um and there would have been a lot of dancing, 
a lot of eating, a lot of drinking. And Jesus, it, we're told, was there with his friends and with his mum. So they're all there. It's a family thing. You know, the best weddings are there when you uh, are when you're with people you know, right? And you can have a lot of fun. Um, and it's got to the stage where the children are dancing in the middle and the bands go in. And Jesus' mum comes up to him. And she says, son, they've run out of wine. And with this is just this exchange. And Jesus looks at him and says, why, why are you telling me this woman? Uh, he uses that word. He says, why, why are you telling me this woman? It's not my time. Um, and when I read that in the gospel, I see it as quite a sort of jovial, sort of cho- jokey exchange between mother and son. Uh, she's come to him and said, son, there's no more wine. And I'm, I know you can do something about this. And he's saying, what are you going on about, woman? I can't do anything. I can't do anything about this. But then what does he do? He goes off and does something about it. And I don't know whether they shared a look because Jesus doesn't actually say anything. But his mum goes to the um, servants at the party and she says, do whatever he tells you. Um, so maybe there was a, a point where Jesus says, why are you saying this to me, woman? I, this isn't my time. And they look at each other and she knows. And so she goes off and says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Um, here's some pictures of people drinking wine. I mean, that's nice, isn't it? Um, and the servants, um, he, te- he tells them there are these nine massive jars Oops, I, I can't bend down now. <laughs> Thanks. Um, it was dead to me for a minute. Um, there were these nine massive jars. In fact, I couldn't find an actual picture of, of the type of jars. They were ceremonial washing jars, and they would have been much bigger than me, which isn't hard, but they, um, they were sort of lined up um, at the side of the wedding, and he said to the servants... Go um, and take a ladle, because you wouldn't have been able to pick these jars up. They're much bigger than this. Uh, and go and serve this wine to, I think it was the father of the father of the groom. The father of the groom. Um, and I don't know if you can imagine being that servant for, for a minute. You've been told to go and serve some dirty water to one of the most important guests of the party. Um, and you go with this ladle... And you've got to pour it into this guy's glass and pretend it's wine. I mean, I wouldn't have really wanted to do that. I think I would have been a little bit apprehensive that I might have, I don't know what punishment they would have been to servants for being cheeky in those days, but it probably wasn't very nice. Um, But there, there doesn't seem to be any mention of that in the story. They seem to just obediently do it. They get this ladle and they can pour it out into the father of the groom's wine glass. And the father drinks it and he exclaims to the groom, you saved the best wine to last. What are you doing, you crazy man? Normally you serve this when people aren't drunk and they can really enjoy it. But now you're serving it at the time in the party where everyone's passed it already. They're not going to appreciate this. And the party continues. And that's the story. And... One of the weird things about this story is it's actually one of the first miracles, well, it is the first miracle recorded that Jesus does in John. Um, 
which I think is quite surprising. And when I was sort of looking at things on the internet about it, there were so ma- uh, the, the biggest headings that come up is why? Why did Jesus do this? Why is it his first miracle? It's so, such a weird one. Um, and I think that question is asked because I don't think it's immediately obvious why Jesus has done this. Because, in fact, it seems entirely... Um, unnecessarily, in fact, totally unnecessary, this miracle. You know, we're, we're coming into a time here where the Jews are being oppressed. There's a lot of sick people. There's a lot of people who need healing. There's a lot of people who need freedom. And what is Jesus recorded as doing as his first thing? Well, adding more drunkenness to a party. It's totally unnecessary. Some would even say... It's a bit unwise, a bit wasteful, um, a bit over frivolous. It's not a word, but you know what I mean. Um, but there was nothing I don't think about Jesus that isn't in the gospel for a good reason. Um, and I think it's in there because it tells us some really, really important things about who Jesus is. Um, really, really important things that are as important as the fact of him healing people, setting people free. Um, what does it tell us about him? I found this picture online. Um, it reminds me of you, Jamie, actually, the sort of thing you might do. Jesus and the Christians remi- remixing water into wine. There is this sense of abandonment, a sense of let's not take things too seriously, a sense of abundance. He's pouring a bottle of water, uh, wine all over his head. Who knows if Jesus did that? Um, it wouldn't put, me, put it past, I don't think I'd put it past him that he might have done that at some point in his life. Um, and I just think it gives the impression that he's not taking himself entirely seriously the whole time. But there is also something very, very serious about this. Very, very serious about the fact that it's not that serious. (laughs) And what are those things that come to mind in the story when we think about Jesus in this way? That he's totally free-handed. There was no sense of... I can do this, so I'm not going to. Or people might people might think I'm a drunkard if I do this. People did think he was a drunkard. They accused him of that. Um, he was totally free-handed. It was massively abundant. There was so much of it, so much of it. And, you know, we could get into theological discussion about alcoholism and all of those things. And I think, for me, I really appreciate nice wine. And I have quite a good relationship to it. And I realise that not everyone has that. And that's okay. Wine might not be the good symbol for you. It might be something more like, I don't know, chocolate or a nice dinner or a spa. I don't know what your thing would be. But it's an overabundance of this thing. Um, It's hugely extravagant. The best wine ever. I would have loved to have tasted it. It's massively lavish. It's bounteous. It's frivolous, say the word right this time. And to me, those words add up to this picture, which I'll put up again. Um, 
And I wonder how many of us would accuse Jesus if he did this today in our time of wasting resources if he was to do this in a club or something and I I was challenged by that when I first read this story because I think I probably would have if Jesus did this today I'd be like well can't you go and heal that person rather than make all this nice wine surely that's more important and that's why I love this story so much because it challenges my meanness it challenges my middle-class, measured, sensitive, and often quite mean outlook on life. Um, And every time I read it, I am challenged by this idea that I think captures the seriousness of the generosity of Christ. I think it captures the fact that there is enough. There is enough, and living out of a place of there is enough is much better than living out of a place that there isn't. At which point I'll hand over to Lucy. Okay. Um, Off the back of this idea of Jesus being generous, um, I just wanted to connect it a little bit to um, some of the new culture that we are in around um, what it means to respond to that generosity. You may be familiar with the idea of the Jewish tithe. That in the in the Old Testament law, there was a compulsion. It was expected that you would give ten percent of your agricultural produce um, as a way. You know, there was a like practical element of that. It was about um, uh, making sure that the poor were fed, and it was making sure that the priests um, had something to live on. So it was kind of a practical way of organising their community to make sure that some people were accounted for. But it was also theological. It was also about saying we're going to give back to God. Um, a small portion of what we have um, as worship to recognise that this belongs to God. Um, But in the New Testament, um, we are actually invited to go much, much further than that, to say, rather than um, portion off a small bit of our lives and say, this 10% I'm going to maybe just give give to God or I'll make a donation to the church or I'll give this bit of time, it's actually about recognising that everything in our lives, everything that we have been given, every resource we have is already God's, was already God's, is a gift freely given to us. us. And actually, our lives are therefore about giving it back to God. Um, And so it's a recognition that as, I, I can't remember which psalm this is, Psalm 24 maybe, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world and all who live in it. There is nothing that isn't God's, that isn't a generous gift to us. Um, And so because of that, actually we're invited into a much more radical place of giving um, than even the most radical kind of give 10% of your income. And there are people in this community that do give 10% of their income. And I have read um, BuzzFeed articles about like this is a really radical practice that some people engage in. Um, and it is c- kind of radical to do that in our day and age, but it is much more radical to present your whole life to God as a walking, living, breathing act of worship, as a sacrifice. And as it says in Romans, that is what we're invited to do off the back of this radical generosity that God has poured out to us, to offer our whole lives as a living sacrifice. Um, And that is our true um, and proper worship. 
And I just wanted to connect that to another really important, I think, scripture that helps, uh, might help you understand how maybe as we as a community think about um, giving and, and how our community works. This, this passage that Paul uh, writes to the Corinthians um, expresses the community of, of God as being like a body. And what I really like about this analogy is it recognises that we are all really different. We're really diverse. We have diverse circumstances. We have diverse resources. We have diverse gifts. But every single one of us is a contribution and whatever we come to give is so valuable and we as a community cannot exist without each part of the body being itself whatever bit of the body you are we need you we need each other to be that body and so when Paul then later talks about um, giving and how the New Testament church start to arrange their resources and how they start to finance each other and pay for some people to travel over here and share the gospel he starts to give us some kind of, well, if you're going to give, this is how you should give in the spirit of who Christ is. Um, each of you, just, just give what you have decided in your heart to give. So we're not in the world now of, the, of, of everyone's going to see you giving your 10%. Just give what's in your heart to give. But importantly, not reluctantly and not under any compulsion, but freely, cheerfully. Actually, this is reminding me of someone that Jane was just talking about, out of, out of abundance and out of um, the pleasure of giving back to God. And actually, then God, you will experience the richness of what it's like to give. And some people might interpret that last bit of that scripture a little bit too literally to suggest that if you give your money to the Lord's work, then you will never suffer any kind of financial hardship and you will always be taken care of. Um, that's not my experience and it's not what I've seen in the world around me. I think we all experience all kinds of strain and difficulty and challenge and suffering and, and finance is, is sometimes part of that. But I think what Paul is getting at uh, when he writes that is that a life that is lived as a living sacrifice is a life in which you experience the abundance of God and where your deepest needs are actually met. Okay. So we're just going to create a little bit of space to um, share some stories with each other because I, I suspect that some of us in this room might have had experiences where we have been the recipients of that kind of unnecessary generosity. So I think I wondered if we could get into groups of maybe kind of, I don't know, five or six, and there might be a couple of people who might be willing to share some of those um, from God or from people, however you would like to interpret that. And what was it like to be to receive something that was a lavish gift or it might have felt unnecessary? And have you had any experiences of being prompted to give in that way yourself? Um, and what was that like for you?